Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, Gustav Hoyer, and it is my great pleasure to welcome on today's episode Stephen Blake, a dear friend of mine who is a filmmaker and a composer and an impresario in his own right. So, hope you enjoy my discussion with Steve. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Good morning. It's a great Saturday morning here in Los Angeles. Feel great. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, and I anticipate some interesting insights from you as we talk today. And in your capacity as a filmmaker and a composer, there's several areas of the domain of orchestral music that come into play. And I'd like to talk about those. Uh, I'd like to talk about both of them. And so what I thought we'd start with is just tell our listeners a little bit about your work first as a filmmaker, a producer, the projects, maybe any projects you're working on that you want to share. And, and from there, we'll just follow the breadcrumbs. Sure. Well, I've been in uh, film uh, all my adult life and goes back to my youth. I picked up a movie camera uh, when I was nine years old initially. So this has been my world professionally. And uh, I've journeyed through uh, feature films, television a series, uh, 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 directed or shot as a cinematographer, a lot of music videos. Um, but I actually then had a major pivot in my life. Um, I actually, if you had, uh, if we'd been doing this interview some years back, I would have been doing very, very hardcore gangster rap music videos, um, which I really exulted in um, from a dramatic perspective, from a filmmaking perspective. It's just wonderful. You can hardly ask for um, a uh, sort of a sort of a richer context from a creative perspective to to really dig into things visually and narratively. But I had a pivot actually in in life. I had a major philosophical shift that took place, a, uh, a spiritual shift that took place, and I had to uh, turn actually from those works I've been doing. And I began looking for uh, a story um, that I could then translate into a motion picture that would actually be a story of light and a story of hope and a story of redemption in our in, in our darkening world, in our world that's quite divided and quite explosive and uh, just um, very, 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 very tense. Uh, it's, our nation's a powder keg right now. I wanted a story that would actually then uh, be a story of light and, and, and again, redemption, and that would um, be a bit of a balm to current circumstances. And I happened upon uh, just such a story. It's the story of the Fisk Jubilee Singers, uh, who actually brought the spirituals back in the 19th century following slavery uh, out of oblivion. They rescued the spirituals, which had sort of been um, kind of dying on the vine following emancipation. But they resurrected these spirituals and they used these songs as songs of hope and healing, songs of faith and freedom. Uh, the, the years following the Civil War were called um, a second civil war. This is called the Reconstruction Era, when um, there was a great, great backlash against emancipation and against uh, the, the liberation of slaves and against the, the various amendments that would make African Americans, uh, well, that would make former slaves 
American citizens, etc. And so this was the we saw the rise of terrorism on American soil and other such things. So that that decade and a half, roughly following the Civil War, uh, was uh, a very very fraught time. And so one of the things that happened was that the supremacist groups actually rose up and began um, unleashing what were called back in those days reigns of terror against these schools that had arisen to educate former slaves, just kind of level the playing field educationally. And these schools were being decimated by terror. And so this choir of young former slaves on one of the campuses, Fisk University, uh, in response to this actually rose up and decided to take to the road to save money to save their besieged school and other schools, and to also uh, win the heart of America for the cause of freedom and equality. And what they used as their weapons of uh, hope, if you will, their swords were the spirituals. Uh, and uh, as it turns out, this ragtag choir conquered the world. They became the darlings of um, Ulysses S. Grant and, and uh, basically the American public at large, and then crossed the Atlantic and actually took Europe by storm and became um, uh, loved by Queen Victoria herself, et cetera. It's an amazing story. Um, and so I set out to uh, then write this for the, for the, uh, for the screen. Uh, I spent about eight years writing this. It's, a, it's an epic story with an epic number of characters, locations, themes that are interlacing. And it is this film called Steal Away, uh, which was the name of a spiritual, the chief spiritual that was used uh, during slavery as a double entendre actually to orchestrate uh, escapes from plantations uh, to freedom, steal away. Um, uh, that very simple spiritual has a double meaning. Uh, our motion picture called Steal Away, it, now in development, is what we are now uh, just about launching financing actually to, uh, to put on screen. So that's occupied me uh, pretty fully now for some time. You and I have talked about this project at various points, and you uh, know that I am a huge advocate, a deeply passionate and interested party. And uh, I do want to uh, ask uh, if people who, who are excited about this and, and thinking about the power of music to heal, and you mentioned division, and I think the arts have a role to play in healing the wounds of society and uh, visual arts and music. It's so beautiful that your project brings both together, but um, are, are you still planning some crowdfunding or some ways that people in all different ways could participate and help bring this to light? I'd love to Absolutely. share that. So, so what we're doing, um, one of the things we're excited about is actually um, extending the filmmaking experience to the general public. Uh, traditionally, I live here in Los Angeles in, uh, in the Hollywood area, and uh, you know, the industry makes movies, of course, and then they present these movies to the people. The, you know, and it's a very insular sort of industry, very exclusivistic industry that the, that the people stand no chance really of being a part of. We're very excited about actually involving the people in the filmmaking process actually and so we're going to be uh we are not only um launching our investor campaign but the sec actually allows us to engage the people and make the people uh uh both donors uh through for example a kickstarter and indiegogo but also investors uh, through what's called a regulation cf so we are launching that and allowing the people actually then to invest in steal away um per sec uh guided uh guidelines uh, and we're going to launch that too. And uh, so in the in about 60 days, we launched the crowdfunding aspect of this, both on the donor side, where there are going to be rewards and even screen credits, and also on the crowdfunding, um, the regulation CF 
side of this where it's actually formal investments and you see returns on your investment. But even more than that, we are launching what we call our Calling All, All Creators campaign. If you were to look up, and this goes to music again, if you were to look up Eric Whitaker's uh, World Choir or Global Choir, he brings together thousands, tens of thousands of singers from around the entire world virtually to create an extraordinary choir. And he's done this on many occasions, actually. That's how we are going to be scoring the soundtrack of this film, Chorally. We're going to be inviting people around the world to sing as part of the soundtrack, orchestrally as well. Many, in, in the wake of COVID, many orchestras uh, um, are, are actually uh, rendering performances of works by having their respective um, instrumentalists perform their parts in their own homes. Um, and they, again, merge then these individual performances uh, into great orchestral performances, virtual performances. There's one example uh, of uh, Elgar's uh, Nimrod variation that you can find online, which is just as sublime as anything you would ever hear in a concert hall, uh, except, of course, for the, the absence of being there live. Um, so we're going to be engaging the public to sing for the soundtrack. We're going to be engaging the public to play instruments for the soundtrack. We are going to be inviting... Um, we're launching a global casting call because we're really interested in reaching out and finding extraordinary talent that hasn't been discovered by Hollywood yet. And frankly, Hollywood, again, is very exclusivistic and is not particularly interested in amazingly talented people that are not already within its system. We are going to be actually shining our spotlight on them. So in all these ways, we're going to be making this movie, as we say, of the people, by the people, for the people. So, yes, absolutely. Our website is... Um, uh, we have two websites. Our company website is realmpictures.co, R-E-A-L-M pictures.co. And our project-specific website is stealawaymovie.com. And again, in uh, a couple of months' time, we're going to be launching the crowdfunding aspects of that, and all uh, information will be there. It's super exciting. And as you've mentioned, the filmmaking industry is, is a, a walled garden and anybody who's participated in any way knows that well. And so to, to offer and extend the power of this project to more people, I think that's a beautiful thing. And the whole idea that music can be a transformational force. These spirituals, we owe it to these Fisk singers and their courage in the face of horrendous opposition to bring what is now a treasured legacy around the world, the legacy of the American spiritual, this this experience of slavery and song. It's now turning it to heal in our time. That's a powerful, powerful project. And um, just celebrate it and excited. And we'll put the, I'll put the links that you mentioned uh, in the show notes as well. But um, I wanted to continue to unfold on, on the music front and talk about for this project, when you think about the music that will serve this, clearly there's a historic music that's going to be shared. The, the spirituals themselves are central. What about the non-historic music? I, I think you have a, a very noteworthy composer attached to your project. And what's your vision? How do you see music participating on, on the parameters, not just through the, the core songs themselves? Talk a bit about your view of music in, as a filmmaker. What a, what a great question. Um... I suddenly this sort of universe of possibility of channels of discussion uh, appeared to me just then. Um, yeah, you know, music is of course um, uh, typically very central to, to, 
to filmmaking. It's a, it's a really, really rich component, whether or not the audience is um, uh, always immediately aware of what's going on musically. And very often it's the composer's intent and the director's intent not to make what's going on musically sort of prominent. Uh, sometimes it very much is. Um, and, you know, music uh, in film follows um, uh, a theatrical tradition, of course, uh, that, that goes back some time, although the early films were silent films. Um, in this film, um, well, I, I, and you know what, let me actually start then and frame this by uh, touching on something. You, you talked about music's power to heal and to change. You are so very right about that. When, when someone stands in your face and, and, and tells you what you should think, someone speaks to you, you're very aware that you're hearing the opinion of this other person. You may or may not receive that um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a receptive way, if I may, um, or you may. There's something, I think, that, I think that our defenses, our filters are sort of in place um, when we engage other people verbally. Um, you know, but there's something insidious about music, something wonderfully insidious about music that I think bypasses the radar, if you will, a little bit. And it, 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 it hits us, I think, um, at a place um, that we're not always aware of. And, you know, I want to point out two things that, that, that kind of uh, speak to what you just brought up and the power of music. Um, and the power of music to change, the power of music to, to, to transform. Um, so I want to take a step back real quickly and just, and just quote uh, this particular man. There was a man named Alexander uh, Stevens. Alexander Stevens was the vice president of the Confederacy. Uh, he was called the godfather of the Confederacy. And in a speech called the Cornerstone Speech, you can look this up on Wikipedia. In fact, I'm right now going to be quoting this from Wikipedia. He makes a statement here that says uh, overtly, our new government is founded upon uh, the exactly uh, the, the opposite ideas of what he previously said. He says, it's found our government, its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. Well, when, for example, the Fist Jubilee Singers encountered this man, Alexander Stevens, and they sang for him. And this is, um, this is recounted in Andrew Ward's book, Dark Midnight When I Rise, um, which is the book that our movie's based on. When the Fist Jubilee Singers, this choir of young former slaves, encounter Alexander Stevens and they sing for him. Uh, they sing Steal Away for him, if I, if I recall correctly. According to Andy War, uh, Andy Warhol, Andy, Andrew Ward's book, Alexander Stevens covers his face and he weeps. And he says, I've never heard anything like that. By the time they parted, that man that I just quoted vowed to spend his life serving their cause. Music can transform. And, and, and that is true, I think, in a profound sense, but also with respect to film, when you have a wonderful composer who is working in concert with the director. And this composer, all film in a sense is manipulation, if you will. A painter also often paints to evoke something from the viewer. And the filmmaker does that as well. Uh, every scene is written 
um, and edited and performed to create a certain reaction. Well, the musical component is a great accomplice to that. Some uh, uh, music uh, in soundtracks can be very overt, very, if you will, sort of um, uh, uh, on the nose. If you were to listen to, uh, for example, the score for Gone with the Wind or, or a Casablanca, uh, the music is a forceful element um, and is, is as powerful, really, uh, as the character's dialogue. There are other uh, instances in film in which the musical soundtrack can be much more and is intended to be more sublime um, so that it's sort of atmospheric. It's manipulating still, but it wants to, it wants to sort of lie low as it does that. Um, in our film, the composer is, is Billy Childs. Billy Childs is a, an extraordinary uh, orchestral, uh, jazz, uh, classical, choral uh, artist whose work spans many genres. And I think his work is some of the very most exciting music being performed anywhere. He, he happens to be a multi-Grammy award-winning artist. And in this film, much in the tradition of, 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 of older films, like A Gone with the Wind or, or Casablanca, uh, the musical themes that are introduced early in the film uh, will then evolve and unfold, as does the script itself, and will be used and will return, will be amplified, will be sublimated, um, to really buttress the story and to convey sort of narrative arcs and narrative um, evolutions that may not be explicit in the script itself, uh, themes assigned to characters, etc. And um, at the same time, something that's not done in film typically, in this film, we want the, the unfolding of the music in this film to be of, of such structure and of such sort of narrative sweep that if you were in a theater and the projector were to be shut down and you only heard the music, you would be able to follow the story through just the soundtrack. And there's an example of this. There's a wonderful composer uh, that I've become really enamored of um, over the past year called Thomas Bergerson. Um, and he has written an extraordinary orchestral suite called um, American Dream. And it's a journey. It's a journey from, from, uh, from Europe uh, across the Atlantic over to the United States. And it's like a, it's like a movie without images. Um, and um, that has really inspired me as well. And so that sort of uh, uh, methodology will figure into what we're doing as well. Um, uh, idiomatically, um, we are not being sort of slavish, if you will, to 19th century uh, idioms. We're very interested in being sort of anachronistic. If you were to listen to by Braveheart, Braveheart takes place ostensibly, you know, hundreds of years ago, and listen to James Horner's wonderful soundtrack for that. Um, it's very romantic 20th century music, actually. It's not period per se. It draws upon that. It evokes a certain period quality, but it's very here and now and relevant. And like that, although this story of the Jubilee Singers is 150 years old now, uh, idiomatically, we are going to be evolving this music in a way that feels very fresh and alive and here and now, and giving our composer, as we will, our cinematographer, our production designer, our, our editor, our costumers, um, as a matter of fact, great license to, if you will, reimagine then um, uh, th this music through a contemporary prism so that it's here and now and relevant for 21st century um, viewers and listeners. Intriguing. Many questions come to mind. Uh, I, I, I'm struck just as you're talking, and we've 
we've discussed this before, but how profound it is that this probably at times terrified band of singers uh, in a very hostile setting really had no idea that they would be unleashing or bequeathing to the whole world's music the legacy that would become evolved through ragtime and into jazz and into rock and roll and all of this the roots of the spiritual musically define almost all modern popular musics in some form they're touched by this body of work it's amazing to think about how you're going to the wellspring of what is what we would turn on the radio and listen to now you're you're going to the very heart of it so it's intriguing you would choose a musical palette that wouldn't be time bound because that would not do full service to the impact of their artistic voice do you think that's a fair assessment you are you are exactly right about that and that's part of the um the inspiration for our approach to this um musicologically so you're exactly right um who could have known that this music that was born and and this is really interesting that of course the spirituals arose from plantations um these were some called them sorrow songs um other others found them very uplifting they were used they were coded messages but they were this was sort of as as our script uh, describes them this is this was sort of blood music originally and what's extraordinary um are, is the amazing, if you will, cultural foliage that came out of the soil of these times. And you're exactly right. This paved the way for, for ragtime and for jazz and gospel and, and, and rock and roll. Um, and these all sort of derive from this. In fact, I think it's fair to say that all Western popular music um, uh, derives from the spirituals. And it's this choir, it's these band of eight people who, you know, could, could not have seen the impact of this down the line. Uh, you know, brought to the world. So, and that's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, as there are many, this story is so amazing. Um, two of the references uh, that we uh, have used in the development of the story and our approach then to its music and its cinematography and its costuming and production design as well, come from painters, for example, Picasso and Francis Bacon. Picasso is interesting because during his Cubist period, if you pull up some of his work and some of his portraits, for example, um, he does, he, he's, what he shows us is uh, defies logic and in defying logic, he gives us more than we should be uh, entitled to. What I mean is he'll take a portrait and he'll show a, a profile of an individual. But now when you look at a profile of someone, you're only seeing one half of their face, but then what he does is he takes the other half of the face and he sort of wraps it around uh, to the side of the face that you're seeing to give us a full frontal, even though it's a profile. And in that sense, he shows us more than that limited perspective should have allowed. Now that's an illogical thing to do, but it's brilliant and it can be very evocative and emotional. Francis Bacon, great English painter um, in Many of his works, uh, he uses these smears. When he creates portraits, he smears the faces. They're not literalistic renderings, but they, um, he, he utilizes these brushstrokes uh, that actually distort literal reality, but convey then these sort of meta-realities and atmospheric realities and, and these sort of personal realities about the subject that would not have been conveyed by a, photo, a mere photograph. And many of them, um, those who appreciated Francis Bacon's work and looked on at the sub, you know, at these 
portraits that he would do, said that in his smears, he captured more of the spirit of that person than, than a literalistic portrait would. So in that way, we're looking at this story. And because, as you say, uh, this music is now the music of the world. There was a reverberation that happened from this story. We are going to, the viewers are going to experience this movie, not just as a then in their story, but we are going to be experiencing sort of, um, uh, it, it's kind of an odd thing to say because it's like, I, um, these, there are sorts of these temporal considerations, but we're gonna be experiencing this through the prism of our present day appreciation of, and a sort of engulfment in um, the fruit and the reverberative effect of what they did back then. So we're gonna be, you know, again, having, there's gonna be spoken word in this. Um, I just left an example of this, you know, you know, the Star Spangled Banner, uh, I, I, I have a, uh, we have a PR social media team and I actually just this morning uh, left them a very specific message saying this. When we hear the Star Spangled Banner, for example, take one of the most famous renditions of the Star Spangled Banner, Whitney Houston singing the Star Spangled Banner, which just, you know, brings tears, you know, to the eyes. This is an ancient song, but who would have thought that its impact would so grip, so cling to, if you will, what we are as a people that sung in a completely different way, idiomatically, you know, much later would, would grip us today as much as it ever did. So it's beautiful when you hear a contemporary performance of, of um, Star Spangled Banner because it has here and now bound into it. And at the same time, Within that is um, an appreciation of the roots then also, the singing of that song. Uh, and, and, and yes, very much likewise, the approach to the music in this film will take into account the fact that what they did then, this ragtag choir that set out uh, and had that very first gig way back when in 1871, that that actually would transform the Western world musically. That will be definite. And that's part of our license, if you will, how we've sort of um, allowed ourselves and granted ourselves the right as filmmakers to go ahead then and to uh, metamorphose, if you will, the mu musical idiom. So it's not just literalistic, but it's here and now. Oh, but by the way, I, I, I like another example, Billy Childs, uh, in one of his uh, uh, CDs, he has a wonderful recording of um, Scarborough Fair that great song from centuries ago. Uh, beautiful melody, as you know, um, uh, it was used by Simon and Garfunkel, uh, but uh, at the same time, when you hear it in Billy Child's um, wonderful, wonderful care, his compositional care, you, you both hear those ancient strains, but you also hear very much a here and now idiomatic um, uh, uh, performance and presentation of it. So it grips you. Uh, sort of in a timeless way. I'm uh, really interested, and I'll be putting links to some of the various things you reference uh, just to enrich for our listeners. If you want to go to the show notes, uh, we'll find some examples of some of these uh, call-outs because they're going to enrich what you're saying. I do want to come back to just an observation, too, as you talk about the moment the Fisk singers are standing on those first performances, they have absolutely no idea what they're about to unleash into the world. But the power of its impact, and this is a something I want to touch on, stemmed from the authenticity of this music. This music never existed for any commercial purpose. There was no sense that people 
the people creating these songs and sharing, proliferating them, were creating something that would be consumable in a commercial way. In fact, there was such an intimacy with this music, there was some reservation, if I'm not mistaken, about bringing this music forward. Do you care to elaborate that? Absolutely. Um, this music was, 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 was sort of blood music. It, it, it was survival music. You know, it, it kept those that were oppressed alive and it, it just, you know, it, it, it kept hope in them. They forged this music to sustain hope and to look forward to a promised land, to a better day. So there, there was there was an urgency to this music. There was a need for this music. It was like food and it was blood music in the sense that it was obviously originated under uh, slavery. So once slavery ended in 1865, uh, you know, um, we African-Americans generally wanted to put that music behind us. We wanted to look forward to another day. We, um, and as young people were born, you know, following that, in fact, one of our, in fact, our, all of our choir, they were all children during, during slavery. So by the time our story sort of begins, they're, they're coming of age, if you will. Um, they wanted to put that music behind them. Um, and, you know, some found it embarrassing. Some just didn't want to be reminded of those things. And so generally speaking, uh, we African-Americans uh, wanted, to, wanted to turn a page on the past. Uh, there was absolutely zero thought of commercializing this like whatsoever or of any sort of use for this beyond the spheres of the plantation. I mean, I mean, there were not that, not that no one ever sang this music following slavery, but by and large, it was being turned from. And interestingly, what happened was, so you had this choir of young former slaves uh, at Fisk University. Uh, and so now this is post-slavery. There are these schools that are being, and universities that are being set up for former slaves. And Fisk University in Nashville was the crown jewel of these schools. And, you know, most of the students there were former slaves, young former slaves, 20-something, you know, teens. And um, this choir at the time, <clears throat> they were singing Mozart. They were singing Beethoven. They were singing classical music. Uh, and their choir director, a guy named George Leonard White, a white guy, uh, a beloved man, this kind of wonderful dreamer, actually. Um, he, he, kind of this wonderful sort of absent-minded guy, but he's, he's a visionary. His eyes are always sort of in the clouds. He was passionate about the spirituals. In fact, if you were to read that wonderful book called The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, that was written uh, in the, at the end of the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century. Du Bois came just after, generation after the Fisk Jubilee Singers. He's one of the great black historians of all time, actually. And he writes, he has a book called The, Soul, um, the uh, Souls of Black Folk. And uh, he has a chapter in that called The Sorrow Songs. And in that, he talks about the Fisk Jubilee Singers and he talks about this music and uh, he actually centers not on the names of the singers themselves, but he centers on uh, George Leonard White. And he, and he writes, and I'm looking at this right now, I'm quoting this. He says, there was once a blacksmith's son born at Cadiz, New York, who in the changes of time taught school in Ohio and helped defend Cincinnati from Kirby Smith. 
And he says, then he fought at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg and finally served in the Freedmen's Bureau at Nashville. It's following the Civil War. And he says, here he formed a Sunday school class of black children in 1866 and sang with them and taught them to sing. And then they taught him to sing. And when once the glory of the Jubilee songs passed into the soul of George Leonard White, he knew his life work was to let those Negro songs sing to the world as they had sung to him. And that is the origin of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Now, George White is now at, uh, at Fisk University, and he's leading, he's, he actually, his day job is the treasurer of, at Fisk University, but he's leading this beloved choir of his. And his partner in crime in this is a young, brilliant, young, brilliant 20-something Ella Shepard, a brilliant musical prodigy. So it's really this really incredible, beloved, odd couple. Uh, older white guy, younger black woman. But um, George White's choir refused to sing the spirituals. He wanted to sing the spirituals, but they were like, no, 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 that, that's behind us. So we were reluctant, but George White wanted the spirituals. So when then Fisk was at the brink of defeat and, and destruction, and when the uh, supremacist forces were unleashing their reigns of terror then against um, these the schools, and you know it looked like Fisk was gonna fall, and this choir took to the road to save their school, they initially were singing Mozart and Beethoven, and it failed. And finally, at the brink of defeat, they're on the road, they're sick. Uh, they are, uh, you know, it's, it, they're out, it's a miserable failure, and it looks like all hope is lost. They make a pivot. They finally agree to sing the spirituals and try that out. They're, they're, there was no other hope at all. Everything else had been lost and they agreed to sing the spirituals and they show up for their first gig uh, to sing the spirituals. And after they, they sang, steal away. This is according to Andrew Ward's Dark Midnight When I Rise. This is in Oberlin, I believe it was. Um, after they finished singing, there was silence in the auditorium. And then you heard weeping. You heard a lot of weeping. And before long, the auditorium was in tears. This music penetrated uh, the people like apparently nothing else had. And by the way, one of Andrew Stevens' comments, as I just cited him a while ago, when he heard them sing was he said, I've never heard anything like this. So absolutely, um, this was an audacious thing for them. They had no clue. Uh, the singers didn't. They hadn't, the Jubilee Singers themselves had no clue. They were nameless at the time, actually. They later uh, named themselves the Jubilee Singers after Leviticus 25, in which the year of Jubilee is declared um, uh, for to, to emancipate uh, slaves, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it was an audacious thing. They could not have suspected the impact the spirituals would bring upon the world. And then when they crossed um, the Atlantic to sing in England, that was hugely risky because the English had no connection to the spirituals. The spirituals were born on American soil. The slave trade was obviously international. But um, the spirituals were not born on British soil, on, but they were born on American soil. So, uh, and, but as it turns out, the spirituals immediately connected with the British just as powerfully. In fact, when the great composer Antonin Dvorak came to the United States, the Czech composer came to the United States to, to, to teach um, in, the, in, the, in the 19th century, um, you know, many in the United States were looking to develop, and, and really America had no 
real music idiomatically. We were really sort of emulating Europe at that time. And so they wanted Dvorak to bring more of that sort of European tradition to the United States, but Dvorak said, no, you need to build your music on the spirituals. He also actually cited Native American music, but he said, uh, so yeah, so this, this music um, was something that we had shied away from. And it was the, the incredible, the wonderful George Leonard White, who is one of the two chief characters in our story. Um, uh, it, was, it was his vision and his boldness and his audacity that actually then, if you will, liberated the spirituals from the chains that they had been shackled by. It's a beautiful story of uh, the partnership of white America and black America in some ways and, and how true that is today, that there is, no, there is no prosperity for our land without a partnership and healing and reconciliation. Yeah, that is exactly right. This is not, and I think the American story is not, but this is not a black story. It's not a white story. It's a we story. Um, the, the quest for freedom, uh, the quest to be able to realize dreams, the quest to be able to uh, live out the life that your creator has marked out for you, that has, that has inspired you to live out is a universal quest. And uh, this is uh, one of the beauties of this story is that it is a white and black and yellow and brown story. It's male and it's female, it's younger, it's older. Um, on the side of protagonists, you have whites and blacks working together. On the side, on, 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 on the side of the antagonists, the, the forces that would want to shut down what's going on, you actually have white and black there as well. It's a story of we. Um, and beautifully speaking, the um, one of the really rich things when you go through the historical documents, and again, you go through Andrew Ward's Dark Midnight When I Rise, which was actually built upon um, re research and, and archival research, you find, I mean, for example, you know, we know that during the 19th century, um, you know, it was abolitionists and, and largely white abolitionists that were fiercely declaring that this needs to be a, um, uh, a, a nation of equality. Uh, in fact, those who held that view were called radicals at the time. Uh, and they actually carried the nation for a window of time during the passage of these, these amendments. Uh, you know, the, the partnership to realize a colorblind nation was white and black. Um, and race was just something that was uh, a thing to, to take uh, wonderful aesthetic note of, the way you would... A, a red and a yellow rose in the garden. Um, and uh, fortunately, um, this is a story in which even redemption for those that held another view uh, comes about. Um, and, um, you know, in fact, let me just mention this other thing. This is a very important point you bring up and germane to the story, but also to, um, I think, to where we are as a nation. And I think, uh, and, and also is one of the reasons I think music can sort of circumvent some of our sort of mental strictures. 12 Years a Slave, of course, was a, was a movie that came out, an Oscar-winning film that came out some, uh, some years ago recently. And um, it was based on the memoirs of Solomon Northup, who was a slave that had been abducted and uh, enslaved. He was a free man from New York who had been enslaved for a decade. And, and this man lost um, 12 years of his life. I mean, he had kids, he had a wife, etc. After he was finally liberated 12 years later, he wrote a memoir called 12 Years a Slave. And here is one quote from Solomon Northup. Now, 
get this. He says this. This is the man that had been enslaved. He says, this is very politically incorrect, so fasten your seatbelts. He said, it's not the fault of the slaveholder that he is cruel. So much as it is the fault of the system under which he lives, he cannot withstand the influence of habit and associations that surround him, taught from earliest childhood. By all that he sees and hears that the rod is for the slave's back, he will not be apt to change his opinions in mature years. And part of this story and the beauty of this story of, of Steal Away and the Jubilee Singers is redemption. So this is not a race issue. This is not, you know, I have many friends, and of course my friends are white and black and Asian and, and Latino. And I have many friends uh, that, um, that would not, friends that are white, that would not step foot and they would just share with me candidly. They don't feel comfortable stepping foot in theaters to see some of these movies because they feel condemned just by virtue of their race. You know, they feel like they're being indicted for being of a certain hue. I love that this story is not that kind of story. That per that quote, this is not, there's no war against a race. This is not race against race. It's an ideology. Um, people think what they think because of the way they're raised. And so this is really about, so what we really want, for example, is redemption. You know, I note that the, the um, most voluminous writer of the New Testament was himself, if you will, a terrorist. And beautifully, he was transformed and redeemed and became one that wrote, never repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good and became a defender of what's right and good. So this is a story that is not race against race at all. If you're a, a white person or a Latino or a black or um, an Asian, stepping into the movie theater to see this film, um, I think that you will be evenly disarmed. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's a, a very, very beautiful thing about this. Um, I'm thrilled to see the final product. Uh, your vision is immensely compelling, and I will be sharing with listeners to the podcast all of these links, or, or many of them, as many as I can uh, marshal in the show notes, but also as you're bringing an opportunity to participate. This is more than uh, a movie. It's, it's a work of cultural healing and, and sober reckoning with our history uh, in a way that is designed to, I think, build and not to condemn and that's we i just celebrate that and applaud you deeply and uh we'll be keeping folks posted on how they can participate as soon as those crowdfunding options and and if anyone's listening who has means that are uh, of a significant nature there's other um conversations i'm sure that are available so we'll just leave that there and um encourage listeners this podcast to go to the websites and support this movie just full stop uh, be a part of bringing this story to life, and uh, and I will admonish uh, any of my anybody who might hear my voice to do the same. And with that, we come to the end of part one of my conversation with composer and filmmaker Stephen Blake. I look forward to having you join me for the second half of our discussion when we explore his work as a composer. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and as always invite you to reach out to me through email or through social media and let me know what you'd like to hear more of thanks for joining <laughs>